Chapter Eleven of the Rose Garden Husband. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Rose Garden Husband by Margaret Widmer. Chapter Eleven. There were trays and little tables, and the food itself would have betrayed a southern darky in the kitchen if nothing else had. It was the first meal Alan had eaten with anyone for years, and he found it so interesting as to be almost exciting. Wallace took the plates invisibly away when they were done, and they continued to stay in their half-circle about the fire and talk it all over. Phyllis tired to death still, had slid to her favorite floor-seat, curled on cushions and leaning against the couch-side. Alan could have touched her hair with his hand. She thought of this, curled there, but she was too tired to move. It was exciting to be near him somehow, tired as she was. Most of the short evening was spent celebrating the fact that Alan had thrown something at Wallace, who was recalled to tell the story three times in detail. Then there was the house to discuss, its good and bad points, its nearnesses and farnesses. "'Let me tell you, Alan,' said Mrs. de Gunther warmly at this point, from her seat at the foot of the couch, "'this wife of yours is a wonder. Not many girls could have had a house in this condition two weeks after it was bought.' Alan looked down at the heap of shining hair below him, all he could see of Phyllis. "'Yes,' he said consideringly, "'she certainly is.' At a certain slowness in his tone, Phyllis sprang up. "'You must be tired to death,' she said. "'It must be nearly ten. Do you feel worn out?' Before he could say anything, Mrs. de Gunther had also risen and was sweeping away her husband. "'Of course he is,' she said decisively. "'What have we all been thinking of? And we must go to bed too, Albert, if you insist on taking that early train in the morning, and I insist on going with you. Good night, children.' Wallace had appeared by this time, and was wheeling Alan from the room before he had a chance to say much of anything but good-night. The de Gunthers talked a little longer to Phyllis, and were gone also. Phyllis flung herself full length on the rugs and pillows before the fire, too tired to move further. Well, she had everything she had wished for on that wet February day in the library. Money, leisure to be pretty, a husband, whom she didn't have to associate with much. Rest, if she ever gave herself leave to take it, and the Rose Garden. She had her wishes as uncannily fulfilled as if she had been ordering her fate from a department store and had money to pay for it. And back there in the city it was somebody's late night, and that somebody, it would be Anna Black's turn, wouldn't it, was struggling with John Zanowski's and Sadie Rabinowitz's by the lapful, 
just as she had. And yet, and yet they had really cared for her, those dirty, dear little foreigners of hers. But she'd had to work for their liking. Perhaps, perhaps she could make Alan Harrington like her as much as the children did. He had been so kind tonight about the move and all, and so much brighter, her handsome Alan in his grey, everyday-looking man clothes. If she could stay brave enough and kind enough and bright enough, her eyelids drooped. Wallace was standing respectfully over her. Mrs. Harrington, he was saying, with a really masterly ignoring of her attitude on the rug. Mr. Harrington says you haven't bid him good night yet. An amazing message. Had she been in the habit of it that he demanded it like a small boy? But she sprang up and followed Wallace into Alan's room. He was lying back in his white silk sleeping things, among the white bed draperies, looking as he always had before. Only he seemed too alive and awake still for his old role of crusader on a tomb. Phyllis, he began eagerly as she sat down beside him, what made you so frightened when I first came? Wallace hadn't worried you, had he? Oh, no, it wasn't that at all, said Phyllis. And thank you for being so generous about it all. I wasn't generous, said her husband. I behaved like everything to old Wallace about it. Well, what was it then? I, I, only you look so different in clothes, pleaded Phyllis. Like any man my age, or older, as if you might get up and go to business or play tennis or anything, and, and I was afraid of you. That's all, truly. She was sitting on the bed's edge, her eyes down, her hands quivering in her lap, the picture of a schoolgirl who isn't quite sure whether she's been good or not. Why, that sounds truthful, said Alan, and laughed. It was the first time she had heard him, and she gave a start. Such a clear, cheerful, young laugh. Maybe he would laugh more by and by if she worked hard to make him. Good night, Alan, she said. Aren't you going to kiss me good night? demanded this new Alan, precisely as if she had been doing it ever since she met him. Evidently that kiss three hours ago had created a precedent. Phyllis colored to her ears. She seemed to herself to be always coloring now. But she mustn't cross Alan, tired as he must be. Good night, Alan, she said again sedately, and kissed his cheek as she had done a month ago, years ago, when they had been married. Then she fled. Wallace, said his master dreamily when his man appeared again, I want some more real clothes. Tired of sleeping suits. Get me some, please. Good night. As for Phyllis, in her little green-and-white room above him, she was crying comfortably into her pillow. She had not the faintest idea why, 
except that she liked doing it. She felt, through her sleepiness, a faint, hungry, pleasant want of something, though she hadn't any idea what it could be. She had everything, except that it wasn't time for the roses to be out yet. Probably that was the trouble. Roses. She, too, went to sleep. "'How did Mr. Allen pass the night?' Phyllis asked Wallace anxiously, standing outside his door next morning. She had been up since seven, speeding the parting guest and interviewing the cook and chambermaid. Mrs. Clancy's choice had been cheerful to a degree, and black, all of it. A fat Virginia cook, a slim, young Tuskegee chambermaid of a pale saddle color, and a shiny brown outdoor man who came from nowhere in particular, but was very useful now he was here. Phyllis had seen them all this morning, and found them everything servants should be. Now she was looking after Alan, as her duty was. Wallace beamed from against the doorpost, his tray in his hands. Mrs. Harrington, it's one of the best sleeps Mr. Allen's had. Four hours straight, and then sleeping still, if broken, till six. And still taking interest in things. Oh, ma'am, you should have heard him yesterday on the train. As furious as furious. It was beautiful. Then his spine wasn't jarred, said Phyllis thoughtfully. Wallace, I believe there was more nervous shock and nervous depression than ever the doctors realized. And I believe all he needs is to be kept happy, to be much, much better. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he got so he could move freely from the waist up? I believe that may happen if we can keep him cheered and interested. Wallace looked down at his tray. Yes, ma'am, he said. Not to speak ill of the dead, Mrs. Harrington, but late Mrs. Harrington was always saying, my poor stricken boy, and things like that, do not jar him with ill-timed light or merriment, and reminding him how bad he was. And she certainly didn't jar him with any merriment, ma'am. What were the doctors thinking about? demanded Phyllis indignantly. Well, ma'am, they did all sorts of things to poor Mr. Allen for the first year or so. And then, as nothing helped, and they couldn't find out what was wrong to have paralyzed him so, he begged to have them stop hurting him. So we haven't had one for the past five years. I think a masseur and a wheelchair are the next things to get, said Phyllis decisively. And remember, Wallace, there's something the matter with Mr. Allen's shutters. They won't always close the sunshine out as they should. Wallace almost winked, if an elderly, mutton-chopped servitor can be imagined as winking. No, ma'am, he promised. Something wrong with him. I'll remember, ma'am. Phyllis went singing on down the sunny old house, swinging her colored muslin skirts and prancing a little with sheer joy of being twenty-five and prettily dressed with a dear house all her own, and, yes, 
a dear Allen, a little her own, too. Doing well for a man what another woman had done badly has a perennial joy for a certain type of woman, and this was what Phyllis was in the very midst of. She pranced a little more, and came almost straight up against a long old mirror with gilt cornices, which had come with the house and was staying with it. Phyllis stopped and looked critically at herself. "'I haven't taken time yet to be pretty,' she reminded the girl in the glass, and began, then and there, to take account of stock by way of beginning. Why, a good deal had done itself. Her hair had been washed and sunned and sunned and washed about every ten minutes since she had been away from the library. It was springy and three shades more golden. She had not been rushing out in all weathers unveiled, nor washing hastily with hard water and cheap library soap eight or ten times a day, because private houses are comparatively clean places. So her complexion had been getting back unnoticed a good deal of its original country rose and cream, with a little gold glow underneath. And the tired heaviness was gone from her eyelids, because she had scarcely used her eyes since she had married Alan. There had been too much else to do. The little frown lines between the brows had gone, too, with the need of reading glasses and work under electricity. She was more rounded, and her look was less intent. The strained library teacher look was gone. The luminous long blue eyes in the glass looked back at her girlishly. Would you think we were twenty-five, even? they said. Phyllis smiled irrepressibly at the mirrored girl. Yes'm, said the rich and comfortable voice of Lily Anna, the cook, from the dining-room door. You surely is pretty. Yes'm. A lady wants to stay pretty when she's married. Yo don't look much more'n a bride, ma'am, and that's a fact. Does you want your dinners brought into the sittin'-room regular until the gentleman gets well? Yes, no, yes, for the present, anyway, said Phyllis, with a mixture of confusion and dignity. Fortunately, the doorbell chose this time to ring. A business-like young messenger with a rocking crate wanted to speak to the madam. The last item on Phyllis's shopping list had come. The wolfhound's doing fine, ma'am, the messenger answered in response to her questions. Like a different dog already. All he needed was exercise and a little society. Yes'm, this pup's broken, in a manner, that is. Your man picked you out the best-tempered little fella in the litter. Here, Foxy. Careful, lady. Hold on to his leash. There was the passage of the check, a few directions about dog biscuits, and then the messenger from the kennels drove back to the station. The crate, which had been emptied of a wriggling six-months black bulldog on the seat beside him. End of chapter 11